0: no announcements is that right no announcements so I had to come up with one February 5th we will have our annual congregational meeting we've often had that towards the end of February but I'm leaving on February the 15th to go to uh, Ukraine and we'll return on March the 3rd and so um, we'll move it up so we have it before communion the second Sunday so it's the first Sunday in February um, also Dr. Ice will be speaking, and also um, Bill Katz will be speaking on those two Sundays uh, that I'm gone. And Tommy's going to cover a couple of other Bible classes as well. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth, thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our time in the word tonight, we need to make sure that we're in right relationship with the Lord. Uh, two things are important in the believer's life, that, or in anybody's life, they have to adjust to the righteousness of God. We do that, first of all, by trusting in Christ as Savior, and secondly, we do it after we're saved by confessing sin, which simply means to admit or acknowledge our sin to God, and He's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Now, Father, we're just so grateful for your mercy and your kindness, your goodness to us that you have provided us with a salvation that is not dependent in any way on who we are or what we do, but is totally dependent upon who Jesus Christ is and what he did on the cross. Father, we're thankful for we have such a great salvation and that you have uh, treated us in such uh, undeserved kindness and with such grace. And Father, we pray that as we continue our walk by means of the Spirit, that we may uh, continue to be reminded of how how much we are the recipients of your grace and how important it is to continue our, our, our daily study of your word, that our mind might be renewed, uh, just completely overhauled, our thinking renovated, so that we conform to your word and not our uh, cultural values or the opinions of our peers or anyone any human being but that we are focused upon you and father we pray that as we continue our study in first peter that you would help us to understand these things in christ's name amen all right we're back in first peter chapter three verse one the last week and part of the lesson before that I went through the doctrine of the dance, and the reason I did that is because we have such a hard time in our culture because of the rise of these anti-Judeo-Christian values uh, related to roles in marriage, that today we have probably three generations. We have the baby boomers, the generation Xers, and the millennials, that as they've gotten further and further away from knowing the Bible or understanding the Bible have been more and more influenced through the uh, uh, political sphere and through the socialization that has taken place through uh, the promotion of radical feminism uh, on the university classroom, that they don't understand the roles that God designed for marriage. And consequently, marriage breaks down. We see this, we would see this in a high divorce rate, it's hard to tell anymore because people don't get married. So the marriage rate has declined, so the divorce rate has declined, but that's only because people go live together, and then they, when they decide to go their separate ways, they just go their separate ways, and there's no way to track uh, the breakups in terms of uh, statistics or anything of that nature. But this, from the biblical perspective, we know that stability comes only from uh, implementing Truly understanding and implementing the five divine institutions, and these fall apart uh, and have fallen apart. The first one is our individual responsibility that every person is responsible to God for their uh, choices for their lives. A uh, second is marriage. Uh, marriage is between a man and a woman, and uh, it is the the foundation for the family, which is the third divine institution. It is to provide the the instruction the framework of stability for the next generation to pass on the values from one generation to the other and you have the the family there are clearly defined roles in the scripture for the husband for the wife and for and for the children ancient civilizations all recognize this but they perverted it uh, that's what human viewpoint does it perverts it but what's interesting is they still held to a to the importance of marriage even though for example in Greek culture they would also uh, it almost institutionalized having a concubine or uh, the, the, the man had a wife to raise or to rear children and he had a concubine or a hetaira uh, as a mistress and so that was formal. So there's these perversions of, of, of marriage, but they understood that marriage was a foundation for the family and the training ground for the next generation, and they had laws. They had laws in Rome, they had laws in Greece, and in older, generation, older uh, civilizations in order to provide that stability. What we've got in our culture, and I think it really began with the, with the baby boomers, the baby boomers were an antinomian reaction. To their parents, they were rebels. They rejected truth. They rejected absolutes. They were influenced by the deterioration in uh, in thought and morality that had really begun in the late 19th century. That's come by various names: existentialism, postmodernism. But they rejected absolutes, and so when you apply that that moral relativism to marriage. Then marriage, as an institution, is no longer significant or valued. That stability doesn't come from following a set parameter of rules, and in fact, those a set parameter of rules is is viewed as a box that hems people in rather than a a framework that enables people to perform to excellence. And so you see that people reject the law. You see an example in our President who has an absolute disdain for the rule of law unless it happens to benefit his purposes and we've seen this just in the last uh, week and you'll see much more of it in the next three weeks I don't think we've seen anything yet. I read one report today indicating that that he has been colluding he and John Kerry have been colluding with the Palestinian Authority, and they have more little Things up their sleeve to uh, to go against Israel with in, in the next uh, two or three weeks. So be prepared. Uh, this is antinomianism. This is against uh, regulations. You've heard me teach uh, many times from this pulpit about Israel's legal right to the land. If you can talk to all manner of unbelievers who don't who don't care a whit about what the Bible says. And they may not care a whole lot about history, but they do seem to care about the law. And coming out of World War II with the uh, breakup of the Ottoman Empire, those same nations that redrew the borders as victors have the legal rights to, and these, this was the foundation of the League of, Na- League of Nations, they redrew the borders for all the nations in, um, in, in Europe. That was their right. They redrew the borders of Germany, Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Austria, all those, and that's legitimate. They didn't have time to complete the task, so they completed uh, the task at San Remo in Italy, uh, concluding their findings in 1922, and they redrew all the borders in the Middle East, including that of what was to be set aside as the national homeland for Israel, and that was that incorporated within it the verbiage of the Balfour Declaration, and it was approved by, I think it was 55 or 56 nations in the League of Nations, and that is what gave the Balfour Declaration international legal status. That's international law. In Article 80 in the UN Charter, they're required by their charter to enforce all of the treaties and laws that were entered into by their predecessor, the League of Nations. That means that the U.N. is obligated to protect Israel's right to the land west of the Jordan so that this recent resolution that was passed down was illegal. It was completely illegal according to the U.N.'s own charter, and, um, and yet nobody cares, nobody talks about it, The world has forgotten it, but there are a few people who keep insisting it. And the reason is, is because people don't care about law. More relativism leads to social and political anarchy. And these ancient civilizations like Greece and Rome understood that. And so they had these rigorous laws and traditions to protect the family and to protect marriage in order to preserve the stability of the nation. And that's really part of the backdrop to understanding why both Peter and Paul take the time to give instruction on the roles and responsibilities from a biblical perspective based on Genesis 1 through 3 for the husband, the wife, the children, and the slaves, and the the masters. Because this had to be preserved, but not in the distorted or perverted human viewpoint way in which it had come to be practiced in these civilizations, but according to the biblical standard. So that's really the backdrop here. So when we come to this section in, in uh, 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6, Peter is applying this biblical framework to a situation, a specific sh- situation, that is a wife that is married to an unbelieving husband. The wife is converted to Christianity, and but the husband is not a Christian. And that would really set up a difficult scenario uh, in the Greco-Roman uh, roman culture. What we've looked at and started through this and looking at some of the background two weeks ago, In 1 Peter 3, 1 through 2, we read, Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, it says pretty much the same thing in the NET translation, which I quoted the last time, stating pretty much the same idea. So it's not a distortion. There's not real difficulties in the translation of this verse. Uh, and some people wish there were, but that's not the point, neither is it something that is uh, culturally culturally relative uh, the verse goes the passage goes on to say in verse um, I'll just stop there and we'll get into verse three in a minute. I want to talk about some background things I mentioned the first two last time, and I want to hit touch on those and then move forward uh, tonight first of all, there's a principle in hermeneutics that is the biblical uh, hermeneutics is just the science of interpretation and there is a science to it there's also an art aspect to it but there's a certain science to it and one of the principles in in interpretation is to interpret something in the light of the times in which it was written are to and also to interpret it in light of the culture there's a cultural context so when for example Moses wrote genesis through deuteronomy in the pentateuch he wrote that within a certain cultural context actually there were two there's the context of the egyptian background and then there's the context of the biblical revelation of god background and that is the cultural framework out of which moses moses is writing uh, but when we study it we look at it from a, a totally different culture we come from a Uh, 21st century Western civilization United States framework and so we have to do a transference to understand how that relates and that's part of uh, part of application but what you often hear today is they say well that was their culture this is our culture so it doesn't relate that's a misuse and a false use of this principle of interpreting in the light of the culture if we understand the cultural norms at a time, we can get a better grasp of what the writer is saying, and we can see the universal principle a little more clearly to apply into the 21st century. So we interpret in the light of culture. It doesn't mean that the standards for marriage, the standards for uh, family, the standards for the roles of males and females in marriage are any different from God's design because when you read these these passages 1 Peter chapter two I mean excuse me first Timothy uh, chapter two verses eight through 12 where Paul talks about not allowing women to teach men or to have authority over men when you look at passages in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. You look at uh, other passages like Ephesians five and Ephesians six, also talking about the roles of men and women, fathers and sons, and and uh, uh, slaves and masters. The pattern always is when you look at the text and, the, and and Paul or Peter are saying why it always goes back to before the fall in a perfect environment of the Garden of Eden. They they're not looking to. Uh, contemporary culture to provide the rationale for why uh, women are to submit to husbands. In fact, they say a lot of things that don't fit and are very different from the way that their culture, either in Judaism or in uh, the Greco-Roman Empire, viewed things. For example, in verse 7, which we'll probably get to next week when Peter addresses husbands, he says, husbands likewise, the same way that, that uh, verse 1 starts off with, with the wives, uh, in the same way, or likewise, wives be subject to your own husbands. He says, likewise, or in the same way, uh, husbands dwell uh, with your wives with understanding, giving honor to the wife. As to the weaker vessel, that's got to be understood in the context of that time period. A husband would have treated the wife as something less than the husband. They weren't on the same plane. Here the husband is to treat his wife with honor and respect uh, as if she is a weaker vessel. And being heirs together, that joint heirship to the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. So that's a warning, men. If you're married, if you're not loving your wife as Christ loved the church, then your prayers aren't going to get answered. That's like almost like if you're like being out of fellowship. Uh, you, you may confess sin, but if you continue right after that to uh, mistreat your wife and not to honor her then you're just back out of fellowship again. That, that, that's one of those situations in the Scripture that says that you can just eviscerate your prayer life by not being the kind of loving husband that the Bible says you should be. So that's uh, getting your relationship correct with your wife is one of the best things you can do to enhance your prayer life. That kind of a sentence would never be communicated in the ancient world or by the ancient philosophers. That is elevating women to a position that is much much higher than any position that would have been uh, would have been noted in the ancient world for women, and you see the same thing with Paul; he does the same kind of thing, so it 's not this this uh, uh the modern feminists like to call this uh, an example of patriarchy, an example of continuing to keep women uh, down and submissive and beaten down and not reach, being able to reach their potential, and that's just the opposite of what uh, what the scripture is saying, so what they are talking about uh, isn't. Uh, what the feminists have talked about and tried to shape the argument, say, well, the Bible just beats down on women. It's just the opposite. Uh, so you really have to have to uh, change your thinking about that. So what this means, I pointed out last time, that we must interpret in the light of the culture is what I've just done, is recognize what the cultural views on the roles of men and women were and how the divine viewpoint reshapes that. There are going to be, of course, points of similarity, but also great points of difference. And don't make the mistake of thinking that when you hear certain words like submission, that that means what the feminists have front loaded that definition with for the last 50 years. They've tried to brainwash this culture in an anti, it's all part of. Spiritual warfare in the angelic conflict is to redefine the terms of scripture in ways that are unacceptable. Second point I made was that in most human viewpoint based cultures, women have been viewed with a less than equal position or status than the male and um, except in certain matriarchal cultures where women are elevated. But matriarchal cultures have never had any level of success, have never advanced civilization, and have never uh, provided a lasting culture. And the reason is, I pointed out last time, going back to the Trinity, that in the Trinity you have equality of persons, but distinction of roles. And you don't get that from an ultimate source. You look at evolution. What's the ultimate reality in evolution? It's just matter and energy that's existed forever it's impersonal, so you don't you can't develop a philosophy a personal relationship if the ultimate reality in the universe is impersonal. You just can't do it, and so the result is that when you're really living consistently with an impersonal metaphysic or an impersonal view of ultimate reality, then it's going to destroy people's ability to relate personally and to give honor and respect to one another. That's exactly what we've seen over the last 100 years or so. We've seen some of the worst wars that in, in the history of mankind. We've seen the absolute deterioration of relationships in marriage and uh, in families uh, more so than in any other time in, in history. And I, so I use that illustration of the Trinity to d- d- uh, demonstrate that. Third, third point I want to make, this is getting into some new material, is that the context in 1 Peter 3 is specifically dealing with an application of the general principle of the wife's submission to the husband to a situation where the wife is married to an unbeliever. That's a narrow restriction. There, Peter is talking to uh, women who are married to to an unbeliever, and he says that even if uh, that uh, you're to be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, and that carries the idea of being hostile or antagonistic to the to the word, and the word there means the gospel. So it's how do how should a wife behave? If her husband's an unbeliever and he's hostile to the gospel. Now, in this situation in the first century, today I would say, well, first of all, you put yourself in your own trap because scripture says that, that Christians are not to be married to non-Christians. And that applies to a lot of people. my first church, I was amazed. I had uh, the daughter's four or five daughters of women in the church. These ladies had grown up in the church. Their parents were still in the church. Their parents were in their 40s and 50s. And these daughters had gone out and they'd gotten married to some guy that they had met at college or somewhere else. And they married him. And the guy wasn't a believer. And they'd grown up a believer. And five, 10 years into the marriage, they're, 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 they're having serious problems in the marriage and they want to know what the problem is. The problem is that they the pastor never emphasized that believers do not marry unbelievers Uh, now it might work if both believe if the believer is totally carnal and in rebellion against God just like the unbeliever is then they're going to be in agreement but if the believer is not living in rebellion then they're going to have a totally different orientation toward life and towards reality than the unbeliever and that just sets the stage for a conflict but what we see in this situation in the first century is you would have had as Paul and Peter and the other apostles went out throughout the Roman Empire and other Christians uh, preaching the gospel, there would have been many people who would have responded. And so you would have women who would respond to the gospel and trust in Christ as Savior and then they go home and they're in a tough situation now because they're married to a husband who would probably be hostile to the fact that she has um, converted to another religion. So we'll get into that in in just a minute. So the third point here is that the context specifically deals with this situation where the wife is married to an unbeliever. Fourth point, and this is is important to understand the culture, the woman, the wives that Peter is talking to. In the Greco-Roman culture, Uh, where Christianity was a new belief system so it wasn't well known it's a new belief so any new belief system that wasn't authorized by the Roman government for much of the first century it was viewed as sort of a sect within Judaism so it didn't get a lot of government opposition it got some under the time of Nero and from about 60, uh, 60 on but it was viewed with suspicion as a new belief system and that Uh, it might often be viewed by the husband that the wife who converted to this new belief system might be thought of as attempting to disrupt the social order because they understood in the Greco-Roman culture that prosperity and stability for the civilization, for Rome, for Greece, uh, was based on the foundation of the accepted religions. They understood that religious belief brought cohesion to the family. Now, of course, their religious belief was pagan, but it still would bind uh, the people together with a a universal or homogenous uh, belief system. And as a result of that... When somebody came in with another belief system, it would be viewed as being disruptive and dangerous to the status quo, and it could introduce new ideas, and maybe ideas that were um, licentious, ideas that were antinomian, ideas that would cause uh, rebellion on the part of women and children and be totally and completely uh, disruptive. In Greco-Roman culture at the time, the wife and children were expected to have the same religious beliefs as the father. Now think about that for a minute. What's an example where you see that at play in the New Testament? What's one of the favorite verses we often quote as a very brief verse for salvation? Acts 16... Thirty-one, and we often quote just the first half of the verse: "Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved." What does the rest of the verse say? Anybody remember? And your household. Who are who? Who's Paul talking to? He's talking to the Philippian jailer, who, after Paul and Silas had been released from jail and they didn't leave, the jailer comes back, and his life's going to be threatened. He said, "What must I do to be saved?" And so Paul tells them, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved, and your household. They understood, they viewed the family as an important unit. That was a cultural thing. And so if the father went a certain way, the rest of the family would follow him in those religious convictions. So uh, if the wife went out and converted apart from the husband, then that would be might be viewed by the husband as an act of rebellion and it could provoke a certain level of antagonism and hostility on the part of the husband so what peter's addressing here is now you're a believing wife a christian wife and you're in a hostile antagonistic environment with this unbelieving husband how should you handle this this is very wise counsel He said, first of all, he's really saying, keep your mouth shut. Don't preach to the husband. Don't try to uh, tell him uh, how to straighten out his life. Live what you're believing, and don't threaten the stability and status quo, because that's what the big concern is, is that now you're just going to turn the household upside down. So that's part of the background here. Um, Fifth point is that a wise conversion might provoke antagonism for her husband from several reasons i'm developing this point out first of all the fact that she would adopt any religion other than her husband's uh, violated the greco-roman ideal of an orderly home in an orderly home everybody's going to believe the same thing everybody's going to trot off to to whatever religious worship together the family that prays together stays together that general idea. Whatever the religious system was, everybody would would be together. So if she adopted another religion, it would be viewed as something that would uh, disrupt an orderly home and therefore could disrupt society. And if the husband viewed his wife's worship of God and Jesus as open rebellion, then this could bring serious consequences uh, to her. Uh, she might be viewed as a source of public embarrassment and criticism for the husband, which was completely unacceptable. Another thing is that the husband uh, and society could view this as being socially unacceptable, especially if she worshipped Jesus exclusively. So they're looking; the society outside the home is looking to this as a threat, uh, threat to them. And then third usually the in these situations uh, in the in the uh, Greek culture the wife's wife was very limited in terms of having friends uh, friends, and uh, associates outside of the home wasn 't like today where you have women going to work and they develop a number of friends that they 've had from college and university and people they 've worked with over the years where they have a whole set group of uh, people that they socialize with that don't have any relationship whatsoever with her husband or w- with her family. And so um, when she left to go to church, she's developing a new sphere of friends, a new sphere of associates, a new sphere of input, ideas. And so this could be viewed as threatening to uh, to the husband and the stability of the family. Furthermore, she needed to be careful how she dressed if she left home without her husband so that she would not be mistaken for dressing like a wanton woman, a prostitute, a hooker, however you want to you put it. I'm always reminded when I talk about this of the fact that, that how people dress and how women dress can be viewed quite differently from culture to culture as the Soviet, old Soviet Union broke up most of the time you know I go over there and I'm there in the winter and everybody's all bundled up and wearing sweaters and everything warm but in 2000 when we went over to Kazakhstan uh, it was summer and you would go to to uh, you'd go to the market you'd go into any store you'd be walking down the streets you'd have a waitress come up and these young girls 18, 19, 20 years old just dressed in really short skirts and really sheer tops, they dressed like hookers. The Soviet Union had been you know, broken up like seven or eight years before and their view of how Western women dress, which was the ideal, was often what they saw in runway shows and how models dressed, and so that's how they would dress. And I remember I had seen this before, but George Meisinger had not. And and George, I remember George making a comment to me, he said, "Ravi, they all dress like hookers. <laughs> well, it's a matter of your cultural perspective. They weren't. Most of these girls were were we, well, one thing we noticed they had an innocence and a purity much like a 12 or 13 year old girl in the United States in the 1940s would have, and they weren't much older than that, but they had no idea they, they weren't debauched like American 18 or 19 year olds, and so they dressed this way, but they had no, they, they had a naivete that, that that bellied how they were dressed. And so, you know, these kinds of cultural things enter in. And so uh, that's why Peter and Paul also address how women are to dress in public going out that it would not bring dishonor on the family or dishonor upon Christ. And so all of these were part of what Peter is trying to address here. Uh, a sixth point that I have is that, like the slave woman, is, like the slave, the woman is instructed to recognize the leadership and authority of the one set over her, the husband, even if he's hostile, or in the case of the slave, even if the master is harsh, um, which would be anything short of any kind of physical abuse. Um, And the reason that this is being emphasized is to show that Christianity is not an assault on the social order or the structure of the family, but that it was indeed honoring the family structure and was seeking to build it up. One of the things that we should note, I pointed this out the last time, is this isn't saying and, and and Paul doesn't say the same Paul's Paul says the same kind of thing be submissive to your husband he's not making a statement here about all women are an underclass and all women need to submit to all men that women are at a lower level than men there's not that kind of a statement here it is saying within the home there's a role structure and the husband's the leader and the woman is to work together with him like we saw In the doctrine of the dance. So, this is what's being emphasized here to build up and and stabilize the family, and that Christianity isn't uh, an assault on the social order. A seventh point is that Peter is speaking in general terms so that it's up to each individual husband and wife to determine the application here to their own situation. And that's really important one thing I've observed over the years is that people are really different they really are and you can look around this congregation and you have many different personality types and you have many different leadership skills Uh, different men have different leadership skills and different women have different leadership skills and how that comes together in one couple is going to be different from how it comes together in another couple. But what Peter is giving here is a general, uh, the general principles related to the man is still the one accountable, God's going to hold him accountable, and he's the one who's in charge, and the wife is to work with him. She is created to be his uh, his assistant to achieve God's plan in their life. So Peter is speaking in general terms. Uh, and it's up to each individual, husband and wife, how they are going to manifest this or apply it in their own situation. Eighth point. Uh, Peter's emphasis is that a wife is to submit to her own husband. I must have skipped ahead on this. This is not saying that women as a class are, are, are that they are to submit to men as a class. I covered that already, but that's point eight. Okay, point nine. Peter has an evangelistic goal in mind here. He's concerned about winning the husband to salvation and how there's a right way and a wrong way to do that and so in this culture or rather in that culture at the time the woman by what was to be uh, was to show deference to her husband and not nag him not preach to him not uh, point out all of his sins and that he needed to get straight with God or he was going to go burn in the lake of fire. Uh, That would be showing a great deal of disrespect to her husband in that culture, and it would be viewed as something that was quite shameful for a woman to say something like that to her husband. Now, other cultures would be a little different. Today we have communication in a very different way between husbands and wives, but it was very different in that in that particular culture. So Peter is addressing that and saying that she should uh, win him through her conduct. And remember, we studied this word uh, as it's used all the way through Peter, that we are to conduct ourselves a, a certain way, that we are to serve a certain kind of conduct. In 1 Peter 1.15, uh, As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Verse 17 of chapter 1, If you call on the Father, who without partiality judges each one according to his work, conduct yourselves uh, throughout the time of your stay here in fear. And so this goes on, talking about how the believer is to live and how they're to comport themselves. And so the woman here has said that without a word, they may be won by the conduct of their wives. She's going to be demonstrating that she's not rebellious. She's not antagonistic to his leadership. She respects his position as the father, as the husband. And so this is not an act of rebellion. Tenth point, so in a rather roundabout way, Peter's cautioning the Christian wife against disrupting the family by asserting her authority over the husband or asserting the fact that she's found the truth and he hasn't uh it's not a he's not telling her to be a doormat he's not telling her to uh to shut up and just sit in a corner he is teaching about how she can best handle a situation that may be viewed as a challenge to her husband's authority because she has uh, chosen a religion different from his. So that's the framework, and it makes much more sense when we understand that. And then he's going to talk about how she dresses because now she's going to be going to meet with other believers. She's going to be uh, probably going out of the house. And so she needs to make sure that she comports herself in a correct way. So in verse 3, Peter says, Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing the gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. Now, this, and there's some passages in 1 Timothy that are similar, are taken out of context by a lot of legalistic people. Peter is not saying that the wives shouldn't dress well. The emphasis is not on, um, is not on, Uh, Dressing down—that's not what he's saying. He's saying that the emphasis needs to be on the inner character, um, not necessarily on the outer character. Today, I read this in a blog that I thought brought this out in a certain in a certain sense. Uh, Some of you may be familiar with David Brooks. He's a columnist for the New York Times. Sometimes he's conservative. Uh, Most of this last year is very anti-Trump. But just on another note. Uh, A week after Trump was elected, he came out and he said, he's really impressed me by the way he has gone about selecting uh, cabinet members. They wouldn't always be my choice, but they're well-qualified people. I haven't heard anything more. I don't normally read him. But he wrote a book, and uh, in this book that he's recently written, he talks about the difference between what he calls resume virtues, and eulogy virtues. This is David Brooks' categories. And he's arguing that our culture emphasizes attaining things in life that enhance a resume. Education, wealth, fame, status. Over-striving for character qualities. Integrity, humility, dedication, and love. Uh, These are usually reserved for a person's eulogy. So his point is that we often emphasize in our culture attaining things that would look good on our resume. They look like we've accomplished things, we've done things, we, have, uh, we look good, we sound good, we live in a good house, we drive uh, cars that have the right kind of uh, uh, status, but uh, rather we should be emphasizing the things that we want people to say in our eulogy. That we we had certain character qualities that's what Peter's emphasizing He's not saying it's wrong to have an education or to dress well or to possess uh, certain things that you can afford because of your your wealth or your success, but that that shouldn't be the emphasis every time I read this verse I'm always reminded of the first few months I was in Dallas. When I went to seminary in 1976, I went to seminary, and for a while, I went to a very nice, Bible, large Bible church in North Dallas, and there were a lot of young people there, a lot of 20-somethings were, were in this church. And it wasn't, it was, North Dallas was a very successful area just north of of Highland Park, which is like River Oaks here in Houston. And it was a, I was just amazed. I mean, I didn't grow up in a small country church. I grew up in a nice urban church here in Houston where people dressed very nicely, where there were a lot of people who who were wealthy, who were well off, very successful, and they dressed well. But I was blown away when I went to this church. It was a fashion show every Sunday morning because there were a lot of nice, spiritually squared-away young seminary guys who went to that church, and they attracted a lot of the, you know, SMU, Socialite, Upper Crust, Highland Park young ladies, and they wanted to be dressed in their in their finest to attract these young men and so you would just see this every every week now I have no idea what and I'm not judging their spiritual status but I just thought that was really interesting because I had never seen that in my experience in in Christianity Uh, it was a little over the top but Peter is not saying here that it's wrong to do these things and obviously Some of the families in the church were wealthy because the women could afford to go out and to spend the extra money for all of the uh, beauty treatments, for the hair, uh, hair designs and everything else, the arrangement of the hair, and usually they would decorate the hair. With gold and precious gems and pearls, and all of this would take time, just as it does today. Uh, so they were You know, there's this view. I think it comes out of the, um, you know, the the some, somewhat Marxist social justice movement that, you know, the idea that, that Jesus was a was a refugee at Christmas. Uh, you probably heard some of that in the last couple of weeks. That he was like the original refugee and so we have to we have to take care of the refugees just like we would take care of Jesus <laughs> makes you want to throw up but and you often read this that in the early church it was a movement among the slaves slaves can't afford the adorning of the hair slaves can't afford wearing gold they can't afford gold they can't afford to look at gold uh, or fine apparel, the word um, fine there is not in the original, it's just apparel. But the idea there is that this is, is costly apparel. They're not just throwing a robe on, uh, not just wearing sh- uh, shorts and T-shirts and sandals. And so obviously there were people in the congregation who were wealthy and who could afford to show their wealth. But Peter isn't saying don't do it. He says don't let your up- adornment be and the sense here is correct even though merely is not in the original that's the sense of the passage don't let it be merely outward he's not saying it's wrong to dress well or it's wrong to spend money on uh, designer clothes or it's wrong to spend money on fifteen hundred or two thousand three thousand dollar suits, if God has blessed you with the money to where you can do that then then you should enjoy the wealth that God has given you as long as you have your priorities straight, and that's what he's saying here that it don't put the emphasis on the outward. But make sure that you are focusing on the inner values of your spiritual life and your spiritual growth. That's the sense of the second verse. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. Now, it's interesting. This uh, New King James language here needs to be Uh, modernize just a little bit first of all this word adornment is the word cosmos you ever hear the word cosmos before that's where it comes from now you may be some old legalistic methodist or baptist or church of christ saying that you shouldn't wear makeup and you should always have women should always have a beehive hairdo or something like that because having adornment is worldliness And they would take that word cosmos and take it in its other sense, which has to do with worldliness. And that's just an absolute distortion and misuse of the original language. In fact, the original meaning of the word cosmos is simply that of an orderly arrangement. That's where we get our English word cosmetics. That a woman will put on cosmetics, she will put on her face. She will organize and structure how she looks very carefully. And that's the idea there. It's not the idea here of a world system, but that came to be applied to a world system because a philosophical system or a worldview is highly structured and highly organized. So that's how the word came to mean more than just... uh, the orderly arrangement of your clothing and your appearance in the second verse in verse 4 where it says let it be the hidden person of the heart what this is talking about is the inner person the real you the real you isn't what you camouflage by how you dress the status symbols that you uh, use the style that you choose to present yourself Uh, that the real you is your soul what's going on behind the facade the way you think the way your sin nature works the thoughts that you have good and bad all of that's the hidden person of the heart and the word heart here emphasizes the center the, the the center of a person's thinking heart has to do with that which is at the core of something Uh, not a physical beating heart. It's talking about that which is at the center of a person's being. And so it's that hidden person in their soul. A heart here would be comparable to soul. With the incorruptible, that's a good translation, incorruptible or impermeable uh, beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, what does that mean, gentle and quiet? Because as soon as you read that, You're you're thinking of some kind of weak, wimpy little doormat. Well, the word translated gentle is the word prouse, which is a synonym for, uh, well, it's related to the word proutase for humble, but it's also related to the other words that we talked about in terms of humility, that humility is being submissive to authority. The most humble person in the world, and this is a word related to the word, the Septuagint translated that, Uh, For Moses, the most humble man in the world in the Old Testament was Moses. But Moses was a very strong, powerful, focused leader. But he was submitted to the authority of God. That's what made him humble. Jesus was humble, not because he was a wimp and he was rolled over by people, but because he submitted himself to the authority of God. We just spent a lot of time talking about Philippians chapter 2. He humbled himself by being obedient to God. That's what humility is, being obedient to the authority over you. So it's the incorruptible incorruptible beauty of someone who is submitted to, to authority and is strong because of it. And then quiet spirit is the word hesuchios, which in some cases means quiet or silent. It could mean that here, especially in contrast to winning their husband without a word, But it also has the the sense of not being disruptive, rebellious, or contentious. And so this also fits in contrast with a humble spirit that is submitted to authority and quiet that is not disruptive, not rebellious, not contentious. Proverbs has a few things to say about this. Proverbs 31.30 says, charm is deceitful. And beauty is passing. It doesn't matter how great you look when you're 16 or 19 or 25 years of age or how well you dress. And it doesn't matter how much you lose your looks or gain better looks as you grow older. What matters is the state of our soul when we're standing before the judgment seat of Christ. Charm is deceitful and beauty is passing, but a woman who fears the Lord... Fearing the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and foundation of knowledge and understanding. A woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. And we can apply that to any believer who fears the Lord will be praised to the judgment seat of Christ. Proverbs 12:4 An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who causes shame is like rottenness in his bones. So couple of applications very similar to what peter is saying it flows right out of the old testament and then he gives an illustration in first peter three five and six he says for in this manner that is in this manner of submission in this manner in former times talking about old testament stories the holy women now that means the women who are set apart as believers It's not talking about the fact that they lived at a higher plane of spirituality, because he's talking about Sarah. Now, we can talk about Sarah and Abraham. They both had a lot of flaws, and they're very clear from Scripture. Okay, they're not perfect. Okay, Uh, in this manner, in former times, the the holy women or the set-apart women, the sanctified women, who trusted in God also adorned themselves, that's the verb form we'll see, cosmeto. also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. See, it's not wrong to adorn yourself. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, so there's this example from Sarah, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Now, we have to understand what this is saying. This isn't saying, ladies, that you need to walk around and call your husband Lord. It might be nice. Maybe their ego would approve of that. But that's not what this is saying. In the ancient world, it was sort of a com. you know, it's like if you read about the founding fathers of the United States, You read about the the biography of, of Abraham Lincoln or any of those who lived prior to the Civil War. It was rare, even in a home setting, where a husband and a wife addressed each other by their first name. They would address themselves as Mr. Lincoln and Mrs. Lincoln. Or they would refer the wife would refer to the husband as sir and the, and the husband would refer to the wife as ma'am. There was a level of protocol and deference on the boat of on the part of both of them and so when um, when when Sarah is addressing Abraham as Lord, that wouldn't be any different from a wife today referring to her husband and, as sir and and or as as my dear husband, because that that was the cultural way of recognizing the head of the household was through this terminology, so it's not some sort of feudal type of of arrangement um, so Sarah obeyed Abraham calling him Lord, that means respecting his position as the husband and the head of the home. And then he applies it to these believers whose daughters you are, just as we're all referred to by faith as sons of Abraham, whose daughters you are, if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Now, did Sarah do some things that were really squirrely and out of order? Certainly. But isn't God's grace well? Go read Hebrews 11. After you read through Genesis 12 through 22, and you see all the squirrely things that Abraham and Sarah did. Uh, they're praised by God over in Hebrews 11 because God is a God of mercy, God is a God of love, and He doesn't hold every little uh, sin or even the big ones. Uh, how many times have you read the life of David and you see David committed some really nasty sins—adultery, murder, conspiracy to commit murder? Uh, he was he was pretty out of fellowship at times and did some some pretty bad things. But all the way through the Old Testament. He's the standard for those who love God. King after king after king that came in his line is evaluated as, are they as good as David? Do they obey God like David did? And when we come to the resurrection, David is going to be resurrected, and David will rule in Jerusalem as a prince. God is going to reward him. God, that's a, always been a great encouragement to me that Samson, who's this failure and this womanizer and this deadbeat, and and he's rebellious against his parents and, and judges, that he's listed in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11 as someone who trusted God at a key point in his life, and God praises him for that. The mercy of God is tremendous. So these are the examples, Sarah and Abraham. Now, it's interesting that if you look through the Old Testament, it's hard to find a place where where you can pin this, and that's because uh, Peter is probably referring to the general view in Judaism at, in the Second Temple period that that Sarah was a a good wife and that she was she's the pattern for submission to her husband for for various ways. And terms of a corrected translation, in 1 Peter 3, 5, we read, For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God. This isn't pistavo here, the verb for trust. It's elpizo. Elpis is the noun for hope. This is the verb to hope, uh, the active part. So, uh, in this manner, in former times, the holy women who hoped in God. They looked to the future. Hope is a confident expectation uh, related to future reward. Because they hoped in God, they adorned themselves not only externally, but also with good works. And that's the point. They were submissive to their husbands. Uh, There, I put the verb in this slide for adorn is to arrange. They set themselves in order, um, being submissive uh, by being submissive to their own husbands. That's that being there would be an instrumental participle that this is how they adorn themselves or organize themselves spiritually was by being submissive to their own husbands as Sarah was uh, submissive to Abraham. And then we have to recognize, and we'll come back and start with this next time, uh, the mandate to the husbands in relationship to their wives. So we see that this is not quite the harsh evil perspective of some uh, Uh, vile, woman-hating, misogynist in the scriptures, but is reflecting the grace and the love of God in terms of how men and women are to live to their fullest capacity by fulfilling the roles that God has designed for them. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word and reflect upon um, these specifics on our roles and think about how we contrast Uh, the biblical understanding of the roles of men and women in marriage to the cultural norms that are out there. And and Father, we pray that we as believers might seek to constantly uh, validate and evaluate our conduct in light of, of your word, that we might be transformed from grace to grace. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.